The reason I was actually prepared to say, yeah, I'd like to take this on was because of the restructure. You know, if this had been an organisation that had been highly flourishing and, you know, really competent, you know, there's a little less attraction there. I actually, I quite enjoy the challenge and the opportunity to come into an organisation that in my mind should be high performing, particularly in a city that I'm quite passionate about and say, well, hey, look, how can I get into this and make a difference? Anne Barnett is the chief executive of Wellington Univentures, the tech transfer office of Victoria University of Wellington, and she joins us on Talking Tech Transfer today to discuss her plans of turning the organisation into a social enterprise renowned throughout the world for the impact it generates. She ponders the importance of the brand and biocatalyst and NZ Innovation Booster Funds and examines how the pandemic has realigned her views on joining international groups. Anne also looks at the challenges around finding senior tech transfer practitioners and tells us what she would love to change about the profession if she had a magic wand. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. To start with, can you give me an overview of Wellington Univentures with some key figures? Sure, no problem. So we're the uh, commercialisation company of Te Heringawaka, Victoria University of Wellington, as you mentioned. Wellington Univentures has been operating for 30 years as an organisation. However, you know, during that time, our remit has somewhat changed. One consistent part of the mandate, however, has been our role in commercialisation and technology transfer for our university. And one of the exciting things that is happening for us from this year is we're also taking on the mandate to run contract research activities for our university. So that's something we're very much looking forward to. I guess one thing that I do need to state is our current status in the technology transfer setting needs to be understood in the context of a restructure that we went through around 10 years ago. So as listeners would appreciate, as can happen in our space, particularly if resources are constrained, there needs to be a high quality alignment in terms of you know, mandate expectations and execution approach between the parent university and its TTO. So effectively, 10 years ago, we were somewhat starting from, you know, almost from scratch, from a very low base of activity. So everything that you sort of see with us today has been built out over that period. Our university, to focus on that for a minute, is around about an $80 million per year research revenue institution. And so off the back of that activity, we receive around 70 invention disclosures per year. We have a pipeline of around about 60 active commercialization projects at any one time that we are managing. Patent portfolio is a little over 200 active patent families. And at the moment, our portfolio of startups is around about 14 active startups. We have 25 full-time staff. 10 of those are permanent commercialization staff. And then we also have a number of staff undertaking important activities around that, such as intellectual property management, contracts management. And in terms of, I guess, a little bit of context of how we operate, some recent analysis out of the Knowledge Commercialization Australia network indicated that you know, Wellington Uni Ventures is sitting in probably about the top half of all Australasian TTOs across a number of typical measures of tech transfer performance. So in some ways, I guess our figures, you know, they tell the story of a small TTO, but the key outcome for us has been that we've managed to embed a financially sustainable business model and that we can operate that at scale. And our portfolio of assets, I think, is really starting to perform for us. So we've had three fairly good exits from startup companies in the past couple of years. And we've also had the opportunity to start to create strategic partnerships that help us to maintain that financial viability. It's really this base of activity that now starts to give us the opportunity to think about ways that we can continue to grow and have impact. You know, we're at this point in time 
the, the beginning of a journey to see if we can develop a more impact-focused TTO model and looking to shift our business over to operate as a social enterprise and develop some quite strong impact-based ventures out of our operations as well so that we can be focused on you know, being rated on more than just the sort of typical TTO and financial drivers. I find that really interesting because I don't know if I've come across anyone else who is trying to shift the actual TTO towards being a social enterprise. Obviously, creating social enterprises is at the top of everyone's mind at the moment. It's very in fashion at the moment on Vogue. How did that decision come about? Where are you in that process? Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, situation, I guess. So, you know, it kind of just occurred to me last year, and I'm not sure if it was a result of you know, pandemic where you sort of sit back and you really start to think about things in a little bit more depth. I live in uh, Miramar in Wellington, which is kind of the hub of our digital creative and film sector. And, and there's a lot of fantastic cafes over there. We drink a lot of coffee. And so oftentimes I was working from home or just going local and pondering things and doing a lot of reading. So I guess that's so where some of these thoughts started to percolate for me. But if you come back to to a basic concept of what a social enterprise is, a social enterprise model for a TTO is actually not too difficult to make that connection. So if you firstly explore, you know, what do we think of a social enterprise? And the way I look at it, I consider it to be an enterprise that's, you know, driven by the need to be financially sustainable, but having more than a private profit motive. And so a social enterprise will look very explicitly to use economic surpluses to drive, you know, social and environmental growth. And one of the key things that I guess makes social enterprises recognizably different from other nonprofits is that that's just sort of distinguishable from nonprofits or charities because they trade in a competitive marketplace. So when you put all those things together, and in particular, if you're a tech transfer office that operates as a subsidiary like we do, then you know, thinking we need to be driven by financial sustainability, we use economic surpluses to drive social and environmental growth, and we trade in a competitive marketplace. Those things actually perfectly describe what a lot of TTOs do. So you can then start to think of yourself as a social enterprise. And in a social enterprise setting, you're looking to have both your business model and an impact model, and they need to operate in parallel and with equal importance. So I see a key part of a tech transfer office operating as a social enterprise is to really utilize that impact model that you develop for yourselves to help with the decision-making processes. So particularly around things like reinvestment of returns. And where we're at in this journey, I, to answer that question, you know, we're really early. So we've got this thinking, we've got a set of concepts. There's a lot of fantastic thought leadership in this space around the world. There are, in some jurisdictions, there are formal legal enterprise models that actually support this kind of structure. So we can take a lot of thinking from the US and the UK in particular and apply that. But I guess the thing that I'm excited about from where I see this going is that it should enable a really much longer term horizon thinking beyond that kind of project by project perspective, which is common in a TTO setting where you've got a very linear model and you're taking projects through. So, you know, you can start to open up questions like, if we as an enterprise want to significantly shift the needle on, say, an intractable disease problem of specific interest to New Zealand, well, how do we go about doing that? You know, can we start to say, we define this is the kind of impact we want to have. And then we look at our university and we say, well, what are the assets that sit here? What are the technologies? What are the projects? What are the resources? You know, how can we bring those together in certain ways to have impact? So you're not going to ever get away from managing individual projects and opportunities, but it just makes you think differently. I personally don't see a strong difference between that model of social enterprise and what tech transfer officers do. So we're just in the process at the moment of starting to develop that impact model for ourselves and then also really starting to think critically about 
what is the purpose of that impact model and you know how are we going to utilize it it could be as simple as i mentioned earlier about defining how you reinvest returns even if it's at a project level or it could be you know a little grander and have a bit more of a sort of existential focus yeah when i hear you talk about it it almost makes me think every tto should be a social enterprise why aren't they why why isn't this the model we haven't followed for the last 50 years you know i think sometimes it can be a circumstance of a perspective and you know one of the things that you did ask us sort of look at and so I'm jumping into your questions now no, but, that's perfectly but things fine. about well, what adva- advantages do we have in New Zealand but you know in general perhaps at our university in particular and sometimes when you're in a comparatively small environment you have to think a little differently about you know well, when I took this role on you know I just made a, a deal with myself I'm not going to be in a situation where this office while I'm running it is restructured. We don't want to go there. It's such a pity because usually those organizations have developed so much resource, so much knowledge, know-how, networks, relationships. When that's taken away and you have to go back and rebuild it, you know, it's a 10-year journey. And so I'm always thinking quite critically about, well, you know, what are the enterprise approaches? What are the strategic decisions that we can make to just really ensure that we are relevant and that we are we're really having that impact focus? And that just kind of leads into that. So might be we're lucky in terms of where we sit that that environment has formed that creative thinking. What advantages do you have in New Zealand other than perhaps being able to experiment a bit more with how your TTO works? New Zealand is a kind of an interesting situation. You know, I guess in general there's some particular limitations, you know, things that are well understood. So the size of our local market, the depths of our industry, in particular, you know, the alignment of our local industries with research activities and innovations and how we're commercializing them. There are things like access to funding at scale can be challenging in some cases. And one thing I would sort of highlight is that there's a real desire in the New Zealand context to create returns and benefit for New Zealand and in New Zealand, but we are inherently small as a market, inherently a long way away from things. And so there is that absolute need to kind of go global to attain scale. So those things are things that we need to grapple with and really think about. In terms of the advantages, I guess that that situation then has created an environment within which there has been a strong development of partnership networks within the commercialization community. You know, we know each other incredibly well. There's a strong degree of transfer. You know, you, you sort of think about the tenets of what makes really good knowledge transfer. And if you think about that in the commercialization context, because it's, it's not just think about transferring the knowledge from our universities outwards but if we think about knowledge transfer between ourselves and how that works it is about all of those things that make it work really well so it's developing new talent in your organization that can transfer to other organizations or go out into industries you know there's that talent piece which is really important there's the know-how and the best practices and the different kinds of thinking there's understanding a government research agency that is very focused on one particular subject matter is inherently going to have a certain type of pipeline of innovations that they've got to work with, whereas ourselves in a university where we have a degree of activity types or research activity types perhaps gives us the ability to build a portfolio of activities that is more diverse and so therefore you're mitigating your risk somewhat. So I think in the New Zealand context, our advantage is we've got really good visibility of all of those different things. And so as a country, from you know a country level right down to an institute level, we can share knowledge and we can be quite critical of what's working and what's not working and with the goal being to innovate and develop upon the base that we're building. That smallness and that connectivity within ourselves can be an advantage in the context that we very definitely need to keep our eyes up to the horizon and the blinkers off because you know being separate a long way from a lot of other parts of the world and particularly with the inability to travel around COVID, that's 
there can be a tendency to get really comfortable in your own backyard. So we do need to keep that professionalism about looking outwards. Yeah. One of the things, I think you mentioned it in your first answer as well that I want to pick up on was that you offer commercialization services to external partners. What motivated that decision and what has the uptake been so far? Yeah, I guess in the context of New Zealand, you know, many tech transfer offices are sort of smaller and subscale, but they recognize that building out that internal capacity and capability takes time. In in our context, we have, and I mentioned earlier, I guess we have that very high quality commercialization partnership network in New Zealand. So we've been able to create strong trust relationships with other tech transfer offices. And so they've had the opportunity to see how we work and see the kinds of activities that we undertake in, in different contexts. And so therefore, that understanding of what we do and how it can be of value as they're on their own growth journeys as tech transfer officers has been pretty apparent. And I guess then that other piece, which I mentioned in the introduction around operating at scale has really enabled us to be in a position to provide those third-party commercialization services to other TTOs. And we do that in New Zealand. We also provide services to government research agencies here and also at times to private enterprises where they may have something they want to work on that's just, you know, outside of normal business as usual. So we're trying to be fairly broad again in thinking about the aggregation of talent and capability that we have in our organisation is not typically replicated in a lot of other places. So, you know, where can we really add value and be beneficial? And look, so far it's going well. I mean, we've got a good reputation for that quality of what we do, but I think also the collaborative approach and that mindset where we're aiming to provide guidance and expertise that's empowering others to achieve the goals that they want to achieve. And so that relationship approach has been met really positively. I'm also jumping around now, but uh, talking about the looking outward as well. Wellington Univentures is partnering the Medical Research Commercialization Fund, which is obviously originating in Australia. What does that mean for a university like yours, having this international fund on your doorstep, so to speak? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. So actually, the Medical Research Commercialization Fund has recently rebranded themselves as Brandon Biocatalyst. So I'll put that brand out there for them. But, you know, look, I think this is a very good example of scale of investment in the Australian and New Zealand setting when it comes to technology transfer. Brandon Biocatalyst has as their focus, you know, almost entirely on tech transfer from research organizations. And so as a result of that, they just have such a strong understanding of the nuances of successfully starting companies out of a research environment. You know, it isn't trivial. And I guess there's that awareness and understanding coupled with the sort of length of funding that's available through a mechanism like, you know, Brandon Biocatalyst. And that's particularly valuable in the Australian and New Zealand context, having a really high quality player in our backyard, you know, Again, it's that ability to build and forge those relationships and navigate that process of getting opportunities up and out of a research institution. We're always looking out for partners and funding. And so, you know, the fact that they are, you know, originated from Australia is not an issue for us. We're looking towards Australia and towards other parts of the world for those, those really well aligned investment groups. And I think Brandon Biocatalyst are a great example of that. I'm guessing one of my next questions would have been if there's room for more such international collaboration specifically perhaps with regards to capital? And I'm guessing the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, oh, look, absolutely. I mean, I guess, you know, if I think about where we're at in terms of the growth of our organisation and the maturity and the time that we need to spend to build those relationships, we're kind of a little bit half grown at the moment. Maybe we're kind of in our teenage years sort of heading off to varsity. So, you know, prior to COVID, we had begun to explore a range of international collaborations that were well aligned with our business. You know, trying to think a little bit 
critically about, well, you know, where are places that are going to have, you know, why are people going to want to partner with us? Because, you know, IP Group, as you gave, I think as an example, will be considered joining them. You know, look, if that makes sense for us and for an, an organization like IP Group, then absolutely. But when you're thinking a little bit more strategically about international collaborations, we have to think, why would any organization want to come and partner with us down in New Zealand? And what is the value that we're bringing? We had started to identify some partners that we thought and places we thought would be really great to set up some good linkages. And then, of course, COVID put a little bit of the brakes on. In terms of relationships, I mean, I would comment that one of the things that was a positive out of COVID and perhaps surprising at the time, but not in hindsight when you think about it, is we actually, our deal making didn't stop. Like we continued to conduct, you know, and secure licensing opportunities with international partners who we'd never met. We continued to attract international funding into our startups. And I think what happened was that, you know, in New Zealand, we are so used to, you know, doing business offshore. It's kind of standard. You know, we get on a plane, we get on the phone, we'll take calls in the middle of the night. Actually, I should thank you for doing this call at a time, which is time friendly for New Zealand. This is really, really good of you. But, you know, we're used to that. And so, you know, when we think about what was happening in COVID, we continue with the project side, but the thing that did stall were those strategic international collaborations. And so that's something that we're it's hot on the front of our agenda to be getting back into that space. Yeah. One of your homegrown initiatives is the NZ Innovation Booster Fund. Can you tell me about how that one came to be and what the uh, impact has been so far? Sure. So this is a partnership that we formed in 2018 with a local financial services company called Booster. And that partnership created a $10 million investment fund, the NZ Innovation Booster Fund, and the goal of that fund was to provide funding for startup companies looking to commercialize innovations and research out of our university. A few things around that fund which are quite neat for us, you know, it has a focus on investment in our startups, but it's always a co-investor. So they're looking to the wider New Zealand and international investment market to provide funding as well so that they don't invest, invest alone. But the fund achieves two really key outcomes, both for us and for our companies. So firstly, it is able to provide that kind of really critical additional capital at that early seed stage, which in some instances in New Zealand has, has just been a little bit limited. So that's a really fantastic opportunity for our companies to ensure that they've really got that funding they need out the door. But then secondly, in some cases, it provides the opportunity for an early partial exit for Wellington Uni Ventures because the fund can also buy us out of a portion of our shareholding. So, you know, as you'd appreciate, cash is king for any business and we're no different. And so this mechanism allows us that opportunity to quickly recycle exit funds and reinvest in the next suite of projects. And it's just such an important mechanism, one of a few mechanisms, but a pretty important one in our financial sustainability. And one of the reasons that Booster agreed to do this was because the founders of Booster are alumni from our university. And so this activity and this way of working is, you know, it's obviously beneficial to them, but it's also part of a way for them to be able to give back to the university in a way that they see as particularly meaningful because the funds that come back are reinvested in the next suite of innovations. How easy or difficult is it generally to find money and talent for your companies? Ah, it's the existential question, I guess. We have got a limited number but high quality set of investors in New Zealand who really understand the space that we work in and we've got good relationships with them. So, you know, usually the first round out the door plus a sort of set of mechanisms that the New Zealand government has put in place and their own investment in a VC fund does ensure that there is capital locally that is going to get things started. 
typically in New Zealand, you can start to run into problems in that sort of Series A, Series B level. But as I say, you know, the interventions there that are looking to work on that. And for any opportunity that's really genuinely high value and market changing, you're going to be able to attract the capital. And, you know, a number of our companies have raised offshore and that sort of distance thing isn't a barrier, particularly if it's a good quality opportunity. The talent piece is a little harder. You know, you've got to invest in talent across the board. And one particular company that I'm on the board of, the thing I'm the most proud of of that particular one is the fact that we managed to build a talent team from having the CEO in Thailand to a high quality director over in San Diego to, you know, New Zealand based staff. And actually one of the researchers involved is over at the University of Kentucky as well. So it was truly global and virtual right from the day it went out the door. But, you know, the talent really coalesced around that opportunity because of the genuine quality of it and the type of data that was coming out of the research and everyone who looked at it. And actually that all Kiwis, interestingly, they just looked at it and said, wow, this is pretty cool. There is a thing there with talent. We do a bit of a build it and buy it approach. So a number of our commercialization staff have gone out and taken leadership roles and management roles in our spin-out companies. We do develop our staff to have governance capability, but nonetheless, a lot of what we are focusing on, continuing to focus on is that networking to attract talent into companies. It, it can be tricky. Talking about staff, Wellington Univentures is celebrating 30 years this year. Your team continues to grow. How easy is it to find TTO managers in New Zealand? Yeah, that's an interesting topic. The talent pool is reasonably specific. As you notice, we are growing as an organisation and we now have established kind of specialised teams who can focus on particular subject matters, which is more akin to a, I guess, a more grown up and larger TTO structure. And the experience that we've had recently sort of looking to recruit for the leadership into those specialist roles has been actually pretty successful in terms of finding high caliber applicants, despite the fairly tight employment market that we've got here. And it's one of the things, talent attraction and retention is so important. You know, we have a very strong focus on that. So, you know, we have a really dedicated team internally that focuses on your know, engagement and people and culture and part of the reason for that is acknowledging that you need to be able to attract and retain people who might otherwise want to work in industry or in other types of occupations we've worked hard to build a strong employment brand and really i think there's that little angle there around focusing on impact and social has a tendency to really attract people to you it's a fantastic way of especially i mean we don't have a problem attracting the younger generation, to be honest. We put an ad out for you know, an analyst or an internship role, we will get flooded and the applicants are amazing and highly, highly talented and keen to grow and develop. It really is about that kind of senior experienced talent that's tricky to find. We have a general manager who's been with us for three years and is about to actually move on to his first CEO role as well, which is really exciting. But when I hired for that role, I'd been without that general manager for 12 months. So for a period of time, I was CEO and general manager of our commercialization company. And at that stage, our business had another division that was also we were also running. So I had to really be patient to get the person who had that degree of experience in particular that we were looking for around deal-making conversion and also leadership of teams. It's not always easy. And I think with the borders being closed, it restricted our ability to get people in from offshore. Having said that, one of our most recent hires who's come into a senior commercialization role waited six months to get through managed isolation to get back to New Zealand to work for us. So we do have an ability to make it happen if we need to. That would have been one of my questions. Is it generally Kiwi people that you hire or what's the makeup of your staff? You know, we operate in a pretty multicultural environment. We've got staff from a wide range of backgrounds. 
typically we've hired people who are resident in New Zealand, but people come to New Zealand from all over the world. So there is a natural kind of diversity there that's obviously healthy. Yeah. How does the engagement from your researchers fare when it comes to diversity and inclusion? As I mentioned earlier, you know, we operate in both sort of a bicultural and multicultural environment in New Zealand. And like all of Aotearoa New Zealand agencies, we're closely examining you know, how we manage our obligations under the Treaty of Waitangi, which is an important um, foundational document for our country. In the technology transfer context, particularly, one of the things we need to focus on is how we work with traditional Māori knowledge, so Mautaranga Māori, and looking to ensure that we support and uphold and respect the principles and enable that knowledge to be a core part of the system. Sometimes that can be seen as at odds with the Western Framework for Knowledge Protection. So it's an area that we are working very actively on ensuring that we have best practice in that space. And that is a core tenant around inclusion if you're wanting to ensure that you are you know, working really proactively and well within your research community, particularly in our country. More broadly, we have a diverse workforce and innovator group and it's just that thing about being really, really important to create space for all types of knowledge and access to processes and ensuring that you don't have you know, biases in the way that you work and behave that may be unintentionally excluding people from being involved and active. Also, cherishing and valuing diversity of thought as well. So it's not just about the sort of particular characteristics of a person. You know, people can look very similar, but actually think in really different ways. And so there's some nice approaches you can use around diversity of thought to ensure that you're really critiquing yourself and making high quality decisions as an organization. Do you have any specific initiatives to improve diversity and inclusion? Do you have, I don't know, I know, for example, University of Auckland has specifically a person on staff to deal with Maori and make sure that you know how to approach the native populations? I guess the focus that we take, in, and probably in our wider university, is broadly looking to increase cultural competency among our people across the board. So it's that confidence to engage. There are specific staff inside the university who have functions and roles like that, and we engage closely with our Māori research community at the university and in the way that we operate and the way that we think about engagement. But you know, for me, it's really about a much broader perspective of cultural confidence and competence rather than sort of looking to necessarily embed that in a particular role. I would prefer to see if we can raise the level across the board. That makes sense. You joined Victoria University in 2013. As you said, you were general manager of commercialization. You became CEO in 2018. What prompted you to pursue a career in tech transfer and what made you join Victoria University in particular? Actually, you're very kind because when I first started, I was a general manager of myself. I didn't actually have that title. <laughs> I was a, <laughs> just a regular old commercialization manager. That was part of the context that I mentioned earlier was that we had been very significantly restructured. So when I joined, I was the sole commercialization manager. We had an intellectual property manager and then the managing director of the organization also ran a number of projects himself and was fairly active in the commercialization process too. So what prompted me to join was... Well, a couple of things. Firstly, I am a Wellingtonian originally, and I had moved back to New Zealand a few years earlier and then sort of fairly immediately got a job with a startup actually from the University of Otago down in Dunedin. And that led quickly to a role in business development, which led quickly to me being on a plane a lot and away. So when I finished that role, I really wanted to be in my hometown and I was sort of ready to put my roots back down here. So that's the, I guess, the local genesis. But 
The reason I was actually prepared to say, yeah, I'd like to take this on was because of the restructure. You know, if this had been an organization that had been highly flourishing and, you know, really competent, yeah, there's a little less attraction there. I actually, I quite enjoy the challenge and the opportunity to come into an organization that in my mind should be high performing, particularly in a city that I'm quite passionate about and say, well, hey, look, how can I get into this and make a difference? And as I was working in a new field in a new career direction, I guess, there's the opportunity to fly under the radar for a bit, you know, get your stripes, make your mistakes, you know, fail in a friendly environment and learn and grow. And so that's been a fantastic challenge. And one of the other perks about perhaps it's a New Zealand thing a little bit as well, but, you know, being in a in this kind of environment is, you know, during that time I've had two children as well. And so sometimes I forget how long I've actually been in this job. <laughs> um, but the whole career development opportunity has been incredibly supportive. And so I mean, I'm a scientist by training and I, I love science and I love deep tech. But when I was a researcher myself, I did find it a little difficult to see myself landing on one thing and really pursuing that one topic, that one scientific topic for, you know, a long period of time. When you're in tech transfer, it's amazing. It's like you're a magpie. You can, there's shiny things everywhere. And I don't mean that in a, I'm not being flippant about it, but the opportunity to learn and to just immerse yourself and enjoy subject matters. And so, Coming into a very, very small organization, I was doing a lot. You know, I was running projects. I think one of my first projects was in enzymology, and I, I literally had the pattern on one screen and Google on the other. And I was, you know, trying to work this through, but you get through those things fairly quickly and figure out what to focus on. But, you know, as a physicist, I would never have dreamed I'd be running a project on developing drugs for Alzheimer's disease, right? And so it's just been such a joy. And one of the things that I've had to really let go of as being, you know, the chief executive is that, you know, that's no longer my job. And I have got fantastic, amazing team, and they're really highly specialized. And I can see how they are able to really bring their subject matter expert and execute on projects in a, in a fantastic way. And so it's just been a pleasure. It hasn't been one job for, what is it now, nine years. It's been a really dynamic and changing opportunity. So, you know, my perspective, if anyone was looking to go jump into tech transfer and they're feeling kind of entrepreneurial and that, don't go for the really well-established organizations. Go find those opportunities where you can make a huge difference because you can really move the needle on the way this organization's operating. So I don't know, that's probably why I'm still here and still loving it. And uh, yeah, that's the motivation. Amazing. What is your vision for Wellington Univentures' future other than the social enterprise aspects? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. And it's always a sort of question I feel like I should have this perfect answer off the back of my fingertips. But my real vision and the social enterprise thing is sitting there as kind of an enabler is to just no longer be viewed as a tech transfer organization. You know, that's not the language that's used, that we are seen as a organization that is able to create very significant impact for Wellington, for New Zealand, you know, and then ultimately for challenges of global relevance. And I guess my vision is really that we're going to punch way above our weight. That people will be going, oh, gee, how did those guys do that? You know, down in New Zealand at a little local university, you know, how have they managed to move the dial on this thing? And so my vision is really, you know, we're not going to be perfect and incredible at everything. We can't handle every subject matter, but there are some things where we've got a nexus here of some very genuinely world-leading research with innovative ways of thinking and what, you know, I would like to see is our organization having taken those and just scaled them up to something that's really outsized for what people would expect us to be doing. I'm perhaps biased, but I think you are already punching above your weight, at least from where I'm sitting. I, you've been on my radar and I've spoken to people from MIT and Stanford and University of Auckland. And I think I reached out to you first six months ago or something. So you've already been noticed internationally by at least one person. If you had a magic wand 
Is there anything that you would change about tech transfer? You're perhaps in a good position now if you are changing how things are run. What's the nagging thing? What would I change? In some ways, this is already happening, but one of the key things there is really around the importance of that activity. It can be put at the peripheral. It can be, you know, technology transfer can be seen as somewhat just another central service function of an institution. And if I could magic wand it, it would be that, you know, universally it's not viewed that way. That universally, I guess, people can really see that there's a genuine value to be had here. And then the thing that goes along with that is patience, please, patience, people, particularly from the parent organizations. You're just creating genuinely sustainable operations in this space takes time. You know, it really does. And don't be too quick to throw the baby out with the bathwater when things get difficult. Always come back and look at like, okay, maybe this organization isn't functioning kind of how we want to, but let's be really constructive about how we take the learnings and the networks, what's actually is working, and then build on that and develop it. So a long-winded answer again, I'm sorry about that. But yeah, you know, just really, if everyone was able to understand that value that can be brought, that would be spectacular. I think that's a wish that would probably be shared by (laughs) many, if not all of your peers. (laughs) Sure. You've already mentioned one company, you very diplomatically didn't name it, but (laughs) can you give me some examples of startups that you are proud of at Wellington? Oh, sure. It's a little cliche, but I'm actually really proud of all of our spin-outs from the perspective that the elements that have to come together to create one are pretty special. So, you know, everyone appreciates that, I guess. But, you know, in terms of highlights, if you're going to um, you know, hold my feet to the fire here, I think it's the companies that have really passionate entrepreneurs at their head and who have come from the research setting and are working on solutions to you know, really critical problems. And those, in some ways, are the ones that really stand out. To give you one particular example of one of our startups is X-Frame. It's a really clever play in the circular economy. They've got a building system that can basically be completely deconstructed at the end of life and reused. And we've actually, one of the other reasons I love it is because you can use this particular X-Frame building system to create internal office structures. And so we've been able to put some of it in our own office. So that's actually really pretty neat. So I can see it every day. But, you know, what's really neat about that particular opportunity is just the way that they're getting traction you know they've got a really solid foundation in Australia and New Zealand and then you know looking very quickly offshore for their next move and I think that it's really gratifying when you get to see in this particular case the innovation the particular innovation is actually really subtle but really well conceived nonetheless the impact that you can generate from a subtle and well-conceived invention is really particularly significant in the space that they're playing in so to me that's probably a standout that I'd be happy to highlight. Amazing. That almost brings us to the end. One final question. You may not have an answer, but is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want people to know about when it's Union Ventures? Actually, I'm going to reframe your question because it doesn't say no about Wellington Uni Ventures, so (laughs) I'm going to take it more broadly. That's fine. I was thinking about this. (laughs) No, look, the message I'd really like to end with is New Zealand is very soon going to be back open for tourism, for business travellers. We're a really wonderful, vibrant and welcoming country. And we're really not that far away. I know people think we are, but we really aren't. So if you ever thought about visiting New Zealand one day, I'd really encourage you to think about making it this year. Um, we'd love to see you. And I guess if the pandemic has you know, taught us anything, it's uh, don't make any assumptions about what's coming. Carpe Diem sees the day and I would very much love to have you visit. Amazing. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and learning more about your work. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Hehlis. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find us at globaluniversityventuring.com 
on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing or on Twitter at GU Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an interview. We'd also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps us grow our audience. You can also reach out to me directly with feedback. Just email tehelis at globaluniversityventuring.com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Goodbye. Do 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 do